I'm ready now to bring this stage of the quest, this chapter, which has dealt with how do we know, how do we know anything, by briefly noting what are to me some of the more important characteristics of post-critical thinking, the sort of thinking that leads to that deeper mystical second innocence. I will list them numerically, but the order in which they are given here has no particular significance for me. One, post-critical thinking requires critical thinking. Post-critical thinking does not mean abandoning critical thinking, the willingness or the ability to analyze, to question, to logically critique the world around us or what is going on within us. Indeed, we cannot escape the necessity of critical thinking, at least not if we are persons of any genuine integrity. We are the children of criticism, children of the Enlightenment. Ricoeur said, and we cannot therefore cease to be critical. I, am, I assume by this he meant that it is impossible to escape the fact that we are heirs, are products of the age of uh, enlightenment, the era of reason. And there is the simple fact that human beings are inherently curious and enjoy solving problems. Be that as it may, there is no religion, no path of wisdom or spirituality, no uh, consistent and sane way of life or set of beliefs that does not require the ability to think, to reason. Even the Hindu concept of non-dualistic thinking cannot be arrived at without a logical process of dualistic thought. Even to casually explore other ways of knowing, as I have attempted, requires reason. And to juxtaposition reason over against faith or revelation is therefore, in my estimation, silly. Reason and revelation go together as much as inhaling and exhaling oxygen. There is no way of knowing whatever is claims to finally transcend reason that does not begin with reason. Now, I greatly appreciate scholars whose work is done with care, honesty, humility, and excellence. But more and more in my lifetime, there has been the rise of scholars in theological and biblical studies in particular. Uh, whose work lacks integrity, although it is marketed as based in scientific method. Their, their reasoning, like that of the Jesus Seminar, frequently violates the rules of both formal and common-sense logic, and their conclusions are often based on a long line of conjectures and speculations for them, I have no great admiration despite their celebrity status. <clears throat> Two, there is no 42-like answer. Post-critical thinking, the second naivete, the second simplicity, recognizes that life's most perplexing and difficult questions cannot be framed in such a way as to render yes or no, all or none, 
absolutely certain or mathematically definitive answers. All we have are levels of probability. Every decision we make in response to the great philosophical questions, questions like, who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? Is reality something more like consciousness, or is it entirely material and entirely a matter of physical processes? Are human beings nothing more than chemical combustion? Is there a God? Did Jesus rise from the dead? What, if any, is the ultimate meaning of my life? Will I be accountable or face consequences after my death for how I have lived my life, for what I have done with it? In the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a computer deep thought designed by hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings who wanted to know the answer to life, to the universe, and to everything. After working seven and a half million years, gives the answer, 42. Unfortunately, no one in the galaxy remembers exactly what the original question was, and so the answer makes no sense whatsoever. But my point is, as the Hitchhiker's Guide confirms or affirms, there is no 42-like answer to our deepest questions. Yet, life, reality, human existence, whatever you want to call it, requires we set a course, that we pursue a path, make choices and commitments, and we can only do so on the basis of probability. One thing that virtually every philosophy and religion and wisdom tradition is agreed on, and the word virtually may be unnecessary here, is that no life is well lived. No life is lived with depth of meaning, and no life knows true fulfillment that does not make these choices with integrity, responsibility, and with passionate commitment. Three, the knowledge in your guts. Post-critical thinking recognizes that our emotions are themselves a way of knowing. Neural research has shown that we actually think better, not when we are disengaged from our emotions, but when our rational thought and emotions are both engaged and integrated. The experience of emotion, even on a subconscious level, has a powerful influence on the neural faculties responsible for making rational decisions. Evidence for this comes principally from studies of patients with damage to specific areas of the brain. Such patients have in common an impairment in emotional processing, and especially emotions engendered by complex personal and social situations, and have in common an inability to now make advantageous decisions. The concept of tacit knowledge, as already considered, involves everything I am, every experience I've ever had, including my every emotional experience. 
like all other faculties of knowing, emotions may be correct or incorrect, and therefore must be tested and correlated with other critical faculties. Gut feelings may be completely wrong, but they also may be right. Four, honesty is preferable to militant doubt. Intellectually, post-critical thinking is characterized by rigorous honesty rather than militant doubt. The critical mode of inquiry attempts to understand whatever is under investigation by viewing the subject of inquiry with and through the lens of what is known by scholars as the principle of radical suspicion. In theory, radical suspicion or doubt sounds like a helpful methodology in the search for exactness, in the search for precision of thought, and as a safeguard against error. In reality, it has been uh, applied in biblical and theological studies with such bias and prejudice of thought that it has proven for all its promise virtually useless. Ultimately, radical doubt is no more helpful than radical credulity. What is most needed is simply uh, honesty, uh, an honesty which has to do not only with the character qualities of integrity, truthfulness, and straightforwardness, but with the deep willingness to, as best we can, see ourselves our consciousness and our work with truthfulness, genuineness, and congruence in relation to the subject or text under consideration. The family systems therapist and rabbi Richard Friedman, or Edwin Friedman, I'm sorry, Rabbi Edwin Friedman, has helped me to see as a corollary to this, that most debunking, uh, that an awful lot of uh, critical thought, uh, particularly in the field of biblical studies and in, th and in theology, arises out of the critics' own inner anxieties and um, unrecognized and unresolved conflicts. A systemic five, a systemic orientation. Post-critical thinking is less linear and more systemic or nonlinear in its orientation than is the linear critical analysis of enlightenment thinking. The difference between the two being primarily one of how one thinks about cause and effect. Linear thinking is driven more by the older scientific thought of simple cause and effect in which one cause has one effect. A causes B and B then causes C and so on. When the vacuum cleaner will not come on, no matter how much I shake it or complain, and Brenda yells to me from the other room, make sure the power strip is on. That is linear thinking. On, on her part. 
and in that situation is very helpful. But it's not so helpful in other situations. When I was counseling, I saw one person after the other who wanted a simple answer to their simple question. In one form or another, what most of them wanted an answer to were questions like, uh, what caused my present problem? Uh, Why does my husband or wife not love me anymore? Why are they having an affair? Why is my boss or co-worker so unpleasant? Why is my child wetting the bed? We think that if we can find a simple cause for our problem, then all will be well. We will know how to control it, how to fix it. Systems or nonlinear thinking is totally different in that it sees a whole field, a whole system of cause and effects in which everything is both a cause and an effect. A not only causes B, but B is the cause of uh, a certain effect on A. A husband thinks his wife is a source, the cause of his unhappiness in life. It never occurs to him that the way he relates to her and the children has anything to do with how he affects them and therefore how they relate to him, how they affect him. He simply cannot see that the problem is with the family system or that he can change things by changing how he himself affects the system. But I digress. My basic point in regard to epistemology or how we can know anything is that my knowledge will be deeper and more accurate regarding life, God, religious faith, or the interpretation of the Bible if I'm able to think in a nonlinear, systemic manner. Six, toleration of ambiguity. We human beings do not live in the Garden of Eden, literal or mythological, with its natural order, organic predictability, and peace. We live in a land of toil and thistles, of sudden and unforeseen powerful eruptions of chaos, confusion, and even deadly suffering. But we tend to think we can return to Eden, that we can somehow slip past the cherubim with a flaming sword and even become masters of the garden. That is, we seem incurably convinced that we have it in our power, in our capacity, to remove the ambiguities and uncertainties of life and therefore the anxieties of life. That we have it within our ability to remove the uncertainties and ambiguities of knowledge. It is, I think as Bertrand Russell said somewhere, we would all like to be God if that were only possible, and some of us have no little difficulty admitting that impossibility. Post-critical thinking, however, has both the humility and the courage to tolerate the anxiety of ambiguity, 
It isn't need for the Bible to read like a bank statement in which every detail must be true and reconcilable with every other detail down to the last decimal or the whole thing is false. Post-critical thought, to reiterate a point made earlier, recognizes that there are countless questions that simply cannot be framed so as to produce yes or no mathematically definitive answers. Everything must be gauged along a continuum of reasonable probability, recognizing and living with inconsistencies is a part of post-critical thinking. Letting them be may, of course, be quite maddening to the more literal-minded, whether liberal or conservative, or for those who think they know more than they can know. But that's the way that things really are. Seven, appreciating other ways of knowing. It can be more than a little startling and even somewhat disorienting to come across ways of perceiving and knowing that are different from our Western Enlightenment culture, and yet which work perfectly well in the everyday world of another culture. For example, for the American Hopi Indian, as I understand it, at least well into the 20th century, time was not chronological as such. But time was when what was supposed to happen happens, like seed time, fruitfulness and harvest, or birth, or and life, procreation, and death. Among the Hopis, tribal celebrations began when they were supposed to begin, when they were supposed to happen, rather than as determined by the atomic clock. It is misguided to think scientific methodology or critical technique and analysis are necessarily the only or always the best means of getting at the truth of saying a biblical text or of life itself. There are other ways of knowing. In the next episode, I will conclude this chapter on epistemology or how we know by looking at a final four or five characteristics of post-critical thinking.